Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. The informal economy in South Africa is still a very big part of the overall economy. Part of why we refer to the informal economy as the informal economy, that is to say people, households, families, uh, consumers that participate in a uh, largely cash economy that is outside on the periphery of what is the mainstream economy who are participating in that way in an unbanked way, for instance, is a significant part of the South African economy. That's That's because many South Africans are still unbanked And even amongst those who are banked, many South Africans, especially low-income South Africans, do not make the full utilization of that as a financial tool. Um, That's testament to the fact that oftentimes people, uh, you know, withdraw all their money from their bank account as soon as money enters their bank account because they would rather operate with physical cash, right? They do not make use of the banking instrument uh, as a financial tool for the purposes, really, of financial inclusion. Um, that's re- that's where South Africa finds itself. In. And that's but one anecdote around uh, what financial inclusion and exclusion looks like in the South African economy. Uh, joining me right now to talk about National Treasury's financial inclusion policy passed uh, by uh, by Cabinet uh, recently is the Director for Financial Inclusion at National Treasury, Nondobeko Lubisi. Nondobeko, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Credit facilities, um, uh, credit ratings, um, overdraft facilities, banking facilities, um, investment facilities, those are all things that one would ordinarily expect all South Africans to be able to have access to, at least hope so, and make full utilization thereof in ways uh, that uh, do not, you know, stretch them thin or whatever the case may be. But many South Africans seemingly on the periphery of that. Why is that and how does the financial inclusion policy address that particular before we speak about all the other stuff that it seeks to uh, address and change? Good evening, Oliver and the SAAM. FM listeners, um, the reason why um, we have a bit of um, problems in terms of financial inclusion in South Africa is because when you look at the pathway for full financial inclusion, there is a bit of um, a process that actually normally would take place. For instance, you will find that uh, people who are employed, the pathway for people who are employed and those that are unemployed would in essence be different. For instance, if we look at um, the South African context, you find that um, full financial inclusion would normally begin with the acquisition of the basic bank account, for Mm. instance. And this will generally be followed by people taking up credit insurance and um, medical aid and long-term savings in the form of retirement. But then, however, what you then see is that these pathways would differ from those people who are employed, unemployed, and those that are self-employed. For example, employed individuals may access um, medical aids, for instance, and retirement um, products, whereas the unemployed and self-employed may have difficulty in accessing these kind of products. Hence, then they will then prefer to go for informal products and services. So that is why then we then need to have financial inclusion to ensure that everyone, the irrespective of what their social status is, actually benefit from the products that are actually 
currently available. And for us as National Treasury to be able to ensure that, we then need to, in, to make sure that we couple all our financial inclusion initiatives with initiatives around consumer financial protection because they are issues of trust around how the, the conduct of financial um, institutions, for instance. And then also we need to also look at our educational levels and then see that people are actually um, consumer um, consumers are actually financially literate to be able to make better financial decisions. And this actually applies for both classes, whether unemployed, unemployed, or self-employed, as well as whether you are actually in the middle class or in the lower income groups. So the mm. financial inclusion policy would have an objective of saying we are targeting those firstly who were previously excluded, but that is in essence not the sole objective. The sole objective is basically to have everybody participating fully in the financial system, whether irrespective of their social standing. That is basically mm. what we are trying to achieve with the financial inclusion policy. Yeah. So talk to me about the programs in the policy. What are they uh, and what is the expect and, and who are the stakeholders involved in the execution thereof? So um, the, the policy has three broad objectives and those objectives are around increasing access to finance for individuals and households so that will be me and you for instance and then we go further and looking look at extending access to financial services for small businesses because we have a legacy in South Africa, whereby small businesses have actually struggled to uh, to access um, the right or suitable products for them as small businesses. Mm. And then the other uh, objective that the policy seeks to achieve is to ensure that our financial sector is actually competitive, there is innovation, and there's actually diversity in the number and types of financial service providers in the country. Because as we currently know, we have the sector is actually dominated by the big five um, commercial banks. Mm. And the policy then says we need to look at how which other players can actually play in the space so that we make sure that people are actually covered um, yeah. in, uh, fully. Yeah, so I want us to speak about all three of those, and I'm going to, I'm going to work backwards. Let's start with that last one about uh, the diversity of products and product service providers in the economy, specifically when it comes to financial services and banking uh, for people. You know, w- what I love about South Africa is that we broadly, we have a banking regime that, uh, you know, gives, uh, you know, leeway or at least it gives existence uh, to three types of banks that service three types of different needs in different contexts, right? Such as a commercial bank, and you make reference there to the big five, and there are, um, you know, things such as uh, mutual banks, you know, of course, sadly bastardized by VBS and that saga, uh, but it's, it's, it's a really necessary banking product and service that could be used in beneficial ways. And then there are cooperative banks, right, which... Uh, is functions different to that, but speak to the types of people you specifically want to, uh, you know. My grandmother has a bank account. She doesn't make full use of it, right? Uh, she still works and lives and operates in a in a hard cash economy, 
For instance, when my grandmother meets with her stock fell, um, you know, it's cash that exchange hands. That cash often doesn't go banked, uh, but when it does go bank, it goes banked in a commercial bank and not in a cooperative bank where they as a stock fell and stock fell members could be owners in the bank um, and, 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 you know, would be in a position to be able to design product services uh, and offerings that speak to their specific financial needs. Given that we already have that statutory framework as far as banking is concerned, in what ways, specifically pertaining to the diversity of products and the access there to, uh, to the third point you mentioned, there, in what ways does the uh, financial inclusion, inclusion policy speak to what is already existing, which I just mentioned, to make sure that it becomes uh, utilized and uh, at scale? Um, Oliver, um, I think with South Africa, what has been lacking is that despite the fact that um, financial inclusion has been happening, what uh, the gap was in the fact that there was basically no policy framework to base, basically channel institutions to, base, to prioritize, in essence, their financial inclusion um, initiatives. We have the Cooperative Banks Development Agency, but then as much as it is there and it was established, it, it, it somehow did not have the, the power to actually um, do what it, 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 in essence, is supposed to do. But then what the financial inclusion policy then does, it does is that it then, under Pillar 3, then says what are the institutions that were currently existing that actually need to be strengthened. For example, we are looking at your um, the cooperative banking sector. We're sure. saying that we need to actually start supporting um, uh, financial cooperatives. And with that, we're then saying that for instance, cooperatives could function better if we have what you would call your second tier cooperative bank, for instance, so that then we then position the, 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 co the, the cooperative banks as a competitor to the commercial banks. But it is very difficult for the sector to actually do that on their own. I mean, even like you said, you said your grandmother, for example, belongs to a CFI or basically is a member of a, a bank of a cooperative banking of a cooperative bank. But then the members then need to be capacitated. And that is where the policy framework comes into place and say, how do we then capacitate individuals to actually ensure that if they were to actually obtain, um, for instance, a license and to, 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 to operate as a cooperative bank, they are able to actually function in a in the platform that a normal FNB, for instance, mm. would function. So that is, in essence, um, how we are looking at, um, at that pillar. We say innovation and competition is actually healthy. You know, uh, mm. we cannot um, continue existing in a monopolistic environment. And we would want then the, the, the government to actually capacitate, capacitate all the players, including it's not only um, your financial cooperatives, you actually also have your mobile network operators who are actually also coming mm, in your fintechs mm. that are coming into the space. And we say, let's have a, a, a level playing field and have this um, institution participating and actually competing with the banks and because we believe that competition and innovation is healthy for the sector. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about financial assistance and financial inclusion of small businesses. I want to take you back, Nontobego, to COVID-19, when a 200 million rand loan guarantee facility was made available for businesses that had suffered uh, as a result of COVID-19. You would recall that, right? Here, the government said, look, guys, please, banks, 
offer loans to small businesses, we will stand as a guarantor to those loans should they default. Yet the barrier to access of those loans was still so incredibly high that uh, less than half of that uh, loan guarantee uh, scheme was utilized. Uh, Banks still had incredibly high-risk assessments uh, for businesses, uh, demanding things such as surety on collateral and all of those sorts of things, which have been initially all along exclusionary. Does the financial inclusion policy framework uh, prevent such a thing from happening again? Should there be such an uh, initiative again, hypothetically speaking, right? Of course, the other ways you could financially include people through uh, loan guarantee schemes. National Treasury often makes those available, especially in special economic zones and through uh, you know various spheres of government always have uh, financial assistance uh, resources available. Uh, there's a 300 million rand uh, uh, you know, uh, financial, small business scheme in, in, in the Gauteng provincial government that specifically that gives you leveraged funding to small businesses. Half of it being loan, half of it being grant, and of course that loan being guaranteed by the Gauteng Provincial Government. That's one example, right? There are many other examples across the state mm-hmm. apparatus where these things exist, yet they still are seemingly inaccessible because banks still have the discretion to make that assessment and they still say, ha, huh, you're too risky for us, despite the fact that the state is a guarantor over there. That's exclusionary in its nature, especially for small businesses uh, that exist on the margins of the economy. Um, how does the financial inclusion policy address that? Um, I think what we need to um, remember with the um, uh, COVID credit um, um, guarantee scheme, um, that was a, what I would say, an anomaly in the economy. Nobody had actually expected that we would have um, a pandemic of this nature. Yeah. And what would then happen there is that government government then introduced various, what you would call, temporary relief mechanism. So the, the, the COVID loan credit guarantee scheme was a response to the, the pandemic. Mm. And then it was not in essence a, a permanent kind of a solution that was put in place for South Africa. So I would say at that but time, yeah, so, so, so... we did not have a financial inclusion policy. And then um, if you did not have that policy framework, then you there was no way that you could have in essence used that kind of initiative as your long-term solution. So what the so, policy so let me pause you there. Let me, then... let, me, let me pause you there because that's that's exactly what I want to ask you there. I'm speaking about it hypothetically, although retrospectively, right, that mm-hmm. a lot of businesses weren't able to access the loan guarantee scheme mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't have the necessary things such as collateral and surety and the bank said that the risk profile mm-hmm. was still too high despite the fact that the state was a guarantor. And a lot of that loan guarantee facilities went underutilized as a result of that. Uh, retrospectively, tell me how the the framework would have prevented that, or if we were ever to mm. be in a situation like that again, how would the, uh, the pol- financial inclusion policy framework prevent that level of exclusion from happening? Thank you. So now what the policy then does, um, we then have what the pillar two. So pillar two looks at um, access to finance for small businesses because we do recognize and we do appreciate that small businesses are the backbone um, of the economy. And mm. we have initiatives around reforming um, that kind of the situation that SMMEs find themselves in. So we are looking at legislative amendments around introducing, for instance, a movable collateral registry, which actually saying that, I mean, we know that not 
all small business um, owners would have property that they would advance as collateral when mm, they're looking mm. for loans. And we're then saying that we need to look at le- uh, uh, reforming our legislation so that we allow financial institutions to accept other forms of collateral. That is one initiative that is there for small businesses. The other thing that we also have um, around small businesses is the By the way, just quickly, how the, far the credit out, bureaus. How far out are we from having a, a, a movable collateral registry? We are actually at the beginning phases because what happens is because we, we the policy, if you look at the inclusion policy, it's a vision document. Mm. So when we start in 2024, we are that's where we are now moving into strategy and saying this is a priority, this is a pillar, and this this priority, and then we want this priority to be basically um achieved okay, in sure. the next five years to medium sure. medium long term. Okay, so, so we're gonna have that kind of a program. Yeah, you were saying something on credit bureaus. Please go continue from there. Um, the other issue is that around our credit information, the credit infrastructure for small businesses, which currently is not at the level that it's supposed to be. So what happens there is that we know that um, we need, you know, uh, financial institutions would need readily available information, credit information on SMMEs to be able to advance credit. But then what happens is because we do not have a, a database or in sense what you will say, right. um, a a proper credit infrastructure for SMMEs, it becomes difficult for banks to actually then um, advance the appropriate credit to this SMMEs, which then actually makes it makes the cost of so credit what is, what is, very costly. For what does SMMEs. that mean, Nontobeko, that uh, the information that credit bureaus collect uh, needs, the data points they collect needs to change so that uh, other data which they currently don't use can become utilizable in creating a credit assessment? Is that what you're saying? That's what we need. We need to then do that. We need to have databases that will actually incorporate or actually accommodate the SMMEs because currently they are not comprehensive enough and you can't, banks can't actually actually use those uh, databases to make decisions on whether to advance credit to our small businesses. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this evening and uh, and thank you so much for your insights into this. This is something, of course, that we will continue talking about as soon as that implementation starts. Uh, and, and we look into the different pillars and, and how the different stakeholders are acting in terms of uh, actualizing some of these goals and targets. Nontobeko Lubisi, who is the Director for Financial Inclusion at the National Treasury. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.